We're going to con- continue our look at the book of Psalms. We're looking at this section of Psalms that is uh, uh, called the Songs of Ascent. There's 15 of these, and they're collected from the wider body of the Psalms, probably by editors and redactors who worked through these books and the oral tradition and gathered things into uh, some kind of logical order, things that they thought would suit the people of God. And this collection of psalms uh, are extraordinary. Some of my personal favorite psalms are in this little collection. We're going to look at Psalm 130 today, but if you've been following along and you've been reading, and look, they're short psalms. There's no reason why you can't spend a little bit of time each day uh, reading through these psalms. Let them speak to you because... We are all, every human being, whether you believe or not, whether you're a church person or not, doesn't matter. You're on a journey. And if you want to be cynical, you're on a journey from life to death, and you know, that's it. If you want to be more hopeful, you look around for some religion that says, hey, there's something after uh, you die. Maybe you go into some kind of uh, uh, other consciousness or if you've been a good person maybe God will reward you in paradise with something Uh, if you're a Christian there is no question that we're on a pilgrimage and like this set of Psalms tells us starts with Psalm 120 and the psalmist is in the land of Meshech which was some land region to the far north and he's also in the land of Kidar the the southern eastern desert of Saudi Arabia in this dark. The tents, the tribes of Kedar, their tents were black. And so he's saying, I was far from God horizontally. My distance, I'm very far away. I don't like it here, so I'm going to take a pilgrimage and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And he starts making that pilgrimage and that's 120, 121, 22, 23. And you see this Beautiful pattern. He's he's pouring out his soul during this time in praise and also in lament. Because the world is not the way God created it. It's not the way He meant it to be. It's the way it is now because of us. And we're on a pilgrimage because we put ourselves far away from Him. Now Psalm 134, which is the last one, we find ourselves in Jerusalem. It's great praise and everybody's happy. Psalm 130 talks about this pilgrimage before we get to the end. And he brings up the point that we are in the depths. Now we're not far in distance. We may be getting closer to God, but there's something also weighing heavy on our souls. And so in your bulletin, we have the the passages printed for you. You can look in your Bible, Psalm 130. Uh, I'll be reading this uh, from the ESV. Now hear God's Word. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word, I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen in the morning. More than watchmen in the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. So we're on this pilgrimage, and John Calvin in his uh, commentary on the book of Psalms in the preface Calvin said that the Psalms are an anatomy of every part of the soul. There's nothing, and I'm paraphrasing now, but there's nothing within the soul of a human being that isn't addressed in this magnificent collection of songs. And they are really condensed in 120 through 134, these 15 Psalms. The laments... The joys, the sorrows, the happinesses, the bad things, the suffering, the evil of this world and the goodness of God, all are there celebrated or at least acknowledged in this little collection and also in the wider book of Psalms. There's nowhere in your Bible where you can go and see the gospel so clearly represented in beautiful songs and poetry that you find in these in these psalms. And here today, like I said, the psalmist talks about distance being in Meshach and Kedar, far away from God by distance horizontally. But now as he draws nearer to Jerusalem, something is weighing him down. He's, he's thinking about, you know, maybe he can see Jerusalem off in the, in the, in the far distance. I don't know. Maybe he's making his way up towards the, the city itself. As Marcos told us, of 5,000 feet. It was higher in elevation than El Paso. And he's making his way up and he's thinking about his soul. And now he's not so far distant, but he is far with respect to what he calls my iniquities. My need for mercy. And so he's describing this need in a beautiful poem. And we're going to just walk through it. I think that I've explained enough about the structure of these things. You'll be able to pick up what's in the center of the psalm and what the main point is. But I'm going to walk through and just make some comments about it. Look at verse 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cries for mercy. This is not a typical, uh, what you see in a lot of, of churches, this kind of stoicism that settles on us and, and we just kind of uh, grit our teeth and kind of gut it out, and you know, I just gotta, I just gotta hold on. Like I've said a few weeks past, you t- uh, get to the end of your rope, you tie a knot and hang on. With another bumper sticker theology, you know, this just kind of grit and bearing it. That is not what he's talking about. He is not in any way denying the depths of his soul. He's not denying the suffering and the problems that sin will cause us. It comes in like a flood. And it can bowl you over and roll you on the, on the, in, the, in the gravel in the surf like a, like a wave in the oceans. It can wreck your life. 
I had a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who was a heroin addict, and he used to tell me, when he came to Jesus, and he used to tell me, Chuck, sin took me farther. He didn't blame heroin, which is one sign that he was healthy. Sin took me farther than I ever dreamed I would go. It's like you wake up one day and you're in the gutter. If any of you have struggled with addiction or alcohol, I did. And you're laying in the gutter and you wake up and you go, how in the world did I get here? And then, slowly, it comes back to you or your friends, my friends, would just were brutally honest and say, you are the worst person in the world and you should have seen yourself last night dancing around the fire naked. No, I mean, come on, folks. We wake up, you know, out of the depths. God finds us in these depths. And it's not because He's up there and He kind of reaches down. Get, he comes into the depths to get us. That's the story of the Gospel. He comes in there. And these Psalms reflect that. He does hear. He does make movement towards us. He has love and pity. What we call mercy. And so this psalmist, this pilgrim, is professing that great need. The iniquities have worn me down. Have mercy. He's crying out. He's emotional. He's beating his chest. Maybe he's pulling his hair. I don't know. He just, he's, he's expressing himself from the depths of his being. He's not suppressing it. He's letting it out. He knows he's painfully aware of the sin in his life and what that has done to him with respect to his relationship with God. In 120, he felt far away. Now in 130, he feels under the weight of sin. And most of us have felt that. Maybe, maybe you haven't. Uh, but there'll be a time in your life when you have. What do you do? What a lot of people do, what every other religion except Christianity tells you to do, is that you recognize you're in the hole, you're in the debt, you're in debt to the cosmic whatever is out there, and you've got to do something to make it right. How do you make it right? Well, immediately you have to counterbalance that bad. You have to do something good. And if you're a Christian and you try to do that, Christianity will will absolutely crush you. Because you can, never, you can never really feel, because you read your Bible, you don't see that. You see God bringing people up. But if you try to bring yourself up, it's going to be crushing. You're never going to get out of the depths. And so what this psalmist does, he recognizes the problem, and immediately, before he does anything, before he starts reading his Bible, getting up at 5 a.m. and saying his prayers and making sure he's in church, maybe writing a generous check to church. That'll do it. Write some, you, listen, write some checks. We want to see that money coming in, baby. Right? I mean, there are all kinds of crazy stuff you hear on late night TV, Christian TV, or from the pulpits. Here's how you can get God to bless you. And in the famous words of John Calvin, good luck with that. Now, this, this psalmist is a real person. I want to be this person. He recognizes the depths, the weight that's on him, and he cries out for what? Mercy. He doesn't even ask for grace. 
He doesn't ask for love. He doesn't ask for anything. He asks for mercy. Mercy is, God, please show pity. Show compassion to me. Overlook what I've done. Overlook the thoughts that go through my mind. Uh, Restrain yourself from the punishment that I deserve. I recognize I deserve to be punished. If you don't think you deserve to be punished for your sins when you commit sins, then you don't understand Christianity. You don't hear it in churches today. They don't want to talk about sin and hell and punishment and blood, atonement and all these kind of gross things. And whatever you think about them as being gross, you're not even close to how really gross they are, really horrific they are. And the psalmist gets to that. So you have distance and you have depths. He acknowledges the depths. He cries out for mercy. He doesn't hold anything out and say, here, I'll trade you for that. He knows he has nothing to give. So we move from that to what is truly remarkable about these psalms is they're put things together that we never would have thought about. And so look at 3 and 4. He puts together humility, absolute humility, and a kind of boldness, a kind of confidence that they're going to be in tension. The humility and the confidence and the boldness are going to struggle with one another. But what the psalmist is telling us is on that continuum of humility and boldness, you're not going to find a middle ground. You're not going to be able to be 50-50. You're going to have to look completely 100% to humility and 100% to, conf- to confidence and boldness. And that's... Not easy, but look at what he says. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Do you see the humility in this man, woman, whoever the psalmist is? He's saying, Lord, if you were keeping track, like we often think God is up there with his tablet or his, well, now it's not a tablet, it's a spreadsheet. And, uh, right, it's an iPad. Or maybe it's a Samsung. But I have a feeling that God uses an iPad. Then we think he's marking everything down. It's, you know, he's looking, scrutinizing every little move you make and every little thought you make. I see you. Right? Not like in the garden where he says, where are you? No, I see you. I see you. I see you. And there's this, this anger in God. He's sneering down at us and marking it off. Black mark against you. And this psalmist, the humility is just pouring out of him. If you marked him, who could stand? He's acknowledging, you know, we couldn't stand before you if you kept track. But with you, and in the original Hebrew, the literal translation, but with you as an inseparable companion, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Do you see what he's saying? That He's putting together... 100% humility. If you counted these, if you kept track of these, who could stand? Certainly not me. But, thank God for that word, but with you, as my constant companion, there is forgiveness. What does this mean? 
This means that on your journey, you know, our kids are going to go back to school tomorrow. And we think, oh, it's just back to school. You know what? Your kids are going on a journey. They will face bullying. They will face uh, weird stuff in church. Their culture is doing all kinds of weird things now, so they'll face that. Listen, kids from every generation and every part of this world have faced things like that. It's nothing new. Our children are on a journey. Our parents, our young families are on a journey with or without children. Our, 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 our members and attenders of church that are in their middle years when they're the strongest and the best looking and their mind is crisp and clear like me, you, you're just tracking perfectly. That was supposed to be funny. Never mind. Or you're older and you, you know, you're on the downside of life. You're thinking, you know, I've got, I don't know how many more years I've got. Wherever you are, you're on a journey of some kind. And you're thinking, your mind is thinking, you're saying, how do I relate to God? What am I supposed to do? And this psalmist takes two things that we wouldn't normally think about. If you were keeping track, I would be hopeless. But with you, there is forgiveness. Because you're my inseparable companion. What does that mean? It means He's with you. He's with you. We have the idea that when we mess up, you know, you come to Jesus, you say, I want Jesus to be part of my life. You get baptized, you join the church, you start coming to church, and then bad things happen. You do bad things or something. You think, well, okay, God's over there. Now He's distant again. And I have to make my way back by some hook or crook or effort or will. And you will have to do, not the hook and crook, but the will power. You will have to move. You have to choose to go. But what you find is He's not that far away. He's not somewhere. In fact, when you turn, when you repent and you turn, you will bump right into Him. That's where He is. He's not off somewhere taking a vacation. From you or from Chuck. Oh God, man, I can't believe what he did. Oh, he believes it. And he stays close so that when you do turn, you find him there. You have no, you don't have to take one. There's no movement other than your heart crying out to him. Who could stand? Oh, I know I couldn't stand, but there you are with you on my journey with me. Tell your children God is with them. Not be good and then He will be with them. Right? We want the Gospel for us, but we don't necessarily want it for our family members. If they mess up, they got to earn their way back. I get grace. I get forgiveness. But we're loath to give it out to the people we don't like. And our children have made us look bad. It's not about them. It's not about their needs. It's about my needs. I ground my boys. I have two adult sons and grandchildren now. And I ground them into the dirt with my, my authoritarian demands cloaked in Christianity. They had to earn it. I got it for free. Somebody say amen, because that's the truth. We grind people down. We see the log in their eye. We see the speck in their eyes. We don't see the log in our own. This psalmist destroys that. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
marking iniquities? No. Forgiveness, this word forgiveness, interesting, in the original language, it is a word that is only used of God's dealing with human beings. It's never used, the word salah, it's never used of humans forgiving one another. It's a unique word. Only God forgiving human beings. Like bara, the word to create. It's never used of human beings. We don't create anything. We can manipulate stuff that God gives us, but we don't create. He creates. You have to have something to create. He doesn't need anything to create. Amazing. So that you may be feared. I, th- I think most of you understand. When he talks about fear, he's not talking about this cringing terror where you get down, you know, oh my goodness, he's going to clean you, he's going to crush me. No, it's reverential awe. Fear, a loving posture. Yeah, you may be down a little bit, but you're thinking, I, th- the respect, the worship, the awe that you have for it is nothing to compare with. We can say, well, the way children, little kids have of their parents or you know, the, the workers for their boss, maybe. Uh, if you're in the military, you know, for your commanding officer, whatever, fear. Yeah, all of that's true. But it's not cringing. It's not terror. It's a loving awe. Reverential respect. There's no balance sheet. Well, that's wrong. There is a balance sheet and there is a scale. You see, these are things we use in our mind to kind of figure out how we're dealing with God. There's a balance sheet, good and bad. There is a, a scale, good and bad. Do you, do you, can you weigh yourself in that scale? Those things are true. And in fact, the Apostle Paul mocked, he kind of made fun uh, in 2 Corinthians. He told, because the Corinthians were doing this, they were measuring each other and looking around the room saying, well, I'm better than him. And saying, ooh, look at his hair. He can't possibly be a Christian. His hair's way too short. They measure themselves by themselves. They compare one another they're without understanding, or uh, I think one, one translation says they're, they're foolish. They're fools. Comparing one another. You know, Christians are notorious for comparing one another. Just all you have to do is look at somebody, and you, within three seconds, you've measured them up and made your determination about them. Yes? Say yes. So be honest. We look and we met. I mean, it's almost instantaneous. It's the flash to judgment and compartmentalizing is so quick, we don't even know it. And then most, you know, if you have a conscience, you go, oh my gosh, what am I doing? What you just did. The Apostle Paul also said this, listen, it's scathing. Since you judge others... Do you avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see? Listen. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does that mean nothing to you? Can't you see His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Does He punish you to turn you to your sin? Say no. Well, how does he turn you to, his, to himself? 
through His kindness. He doesn't need to punish you, folks. Sin bears its own barbs and thorns. He doesn't have to even lift a finger. He can give you what you want most in this world, and it will crush you to the ground. He doesn't have to lift a finger. And yet we think, oh, God's doing all this stuff to me. Yeah, He's doing stuff to you. He's showing you kindness. Something horrible. You go to the doctor and you have appointments and the doctors say stuff. You know, why is God doing this to me? That is not what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, look at who is with you in this. Look who's there with you. His kindness to you, His love for you, His promises to you are intended to turn you to Him. Comparison and... and We compare. God shows compassion. Then look at 5 and 6. Here's confidence and patience. He puts these two together because they're very important. And one of the unique things about our modern world is that we, you know, we have... uh, we have phones like this, and I know that none of your phones are as good as this one um, because it is an Apple phone, and it's really fast, and it's small. I like the small ones because then I can put it anywhere. Nobody can even know I have it, which I don't want them to know because I want to appear holy. <laughs> and you're going to open up your news app, and what do you do? You open the news app, and what, is ha- what happens? This hand, if you're left right-handed... What do you do? Right? I mean, if anything, in the the modern world, our attention span is about this long. We go, 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 go. We want everything now, 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 now. Patience, patience. What are you talking about? I ordered my coffee, like I told you last night. I ordered my coffee online. It should be there when I get there. My $8 cup of coffee. If anything, we need to have uh, God working in our lives, showing us how to be patient. Patient. Wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In other words, He's making it part of His declaration of faith. My soul is waiting. He doesn't say how long. He doesn't say under what circumstances. He just says, I am waiting and I'm going to wait. My soul waits. My soul waits. In His Word do I hope. Do you see He has what we call an eternal perspective. Something that you've got to, you've got to rub that down into, the, into the, uh, the bottom of your being. That this is not, you know, it's not you run up to 80 or you run up to 70 or you run up to whatever age and then it's over and you just go whatever. No, there is more to life than that. God is eternal. He wants you with Him so you will be eternal in some state. And He wants you to look past. Look at the world now. Yes, you don't want to ignore the world now. That's also toxic. But He also wants you to cast an eye to the future. To bring the two together. As hard as it is, and it is hard, I'll grant you that. More than a watchman in the morning. In other words, there's an expectancy that somewhere, is this your life? There's an expectancy of somewhere on the horizon, God is moving towards you. 
Yes, you're on a journey. You're making your way to Jerusalem. But you're not the only one who's moving. He's not just sitting up there in his throne and he's got the tree of life in front of him and he's peeking around the tree going, catch me, catch me if you can. He's making his way to you. His son stepped down from that throne, took our flesh, our weakness on himself. He set aside the glory that was his. And he came down. He made the trip. He made the journey, the pilgrimage to you as you're making it to him. There's nothing like this, folks. Get this into your life. Christianity should be a life of joy. Not happy, clappy joy, because there's going to be probably tons more sorrow. But underneath that sorrow and that pain and that doubt is going to run a current of joy. The joy that, that comes from looking on the horizon for the watchman, knowing that he's either there or he's on his way. And nothing can shake you from that truth. Nothing. Because He's given you His Word. He promised. I've told a lot of uh, the parents in this church, uh, especially those of you with adult children who may be far from the Lord, that on your dying bed, when you're dying, and you're thinking, what is the last thing I want to say to God before I die? And you have children that are kind of wayward. They're off. Maybe you don't know what's going on with your kids. I don't know. But I know, I know for me, for my sons, I, and for my grandchildren now, my last words out of my mouth, if God allows me to do it, I will say to him, you promised. You promised. And if you've got a child that's away from the Lord or something's wrong, and you think... Well, or maybe it's your parents. You're estranged from your parents. You promised. You promised. The pilgrim, listen, he's wide awake. He's confident. He's expect. even in the midst of all the troubles that life will throw at you, and, they, and it does, he's still awake. He's confident. He's expecting, especially when it's dark. Those dark hours before the sun comes up when it's the deepest dark that's when he's the most awake that's when he's looking that's when he's stretching out his hope for the future he's acknowledging you know there's nothing I can do to speed this up but one thing I can do is I can wait I can watch I can be ready for him And then finally, really what undergirds all of this are two things, condition and character. Now listen carefully. This is so important. You just don't hear this much anymore. He turns from his own personal distress in 5 and 6. He says, I uh, look, I watch, I wait, I do all. He's singular. But now he is urging. It's what Dawson and Marcos and and Rene, and, and uh, what, what your pastors wish to convey to you, to urge upon you. Now, we, we've struggled with these things. It's not, a, it's not that we're above and we don't have problems. We have problems. Dawson has lots of problems. M- Marco has more problems than anybody. I'm the only one that's stable in this <laughs> relationship. 
And I keep telling them, you need to f do everything I tell you. But it doesn't do any good because now Dawson's the boss and I have to do everything he tells me. <laughs> You're going to suffer. You're going to have problems with that stuff. But then you come to church and you hear your pastors urging on you these truths. We, you know, we want to tell you, this is real stuff, folks. And we're urging it now, Israel. Oh, Israel, hear what God is saying. The conditions that he talks about here are in several words. One is steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word chesed, which I've told you is a marvelous word in Hebrew. Plentiful redemption. That's another amazing word. I wish I had more time to talk about it. Redemption and iniquities, all these words, they're just packed with meaning. But chesed is truly unique. It's unconditional love. Do you hear me? Unconditional love that has a condition. The unconditional love that we talk about, the love and faithfulness that we're to show to one another, to God Himself, and that God shows us, takes in no account, listen, takes no account of our condition. It doesn't, it totally ignores the depths or the distance. It just ignores that. So I'll just accept you any old way you are. And that's true until the next day. And then what happens? Well, hey, you're not improving. You're not getting any better. You're not meeting my conditions. Unconditional love takes no account into our condition, nor does it take into account God's character. That He is holy and righteous and just and pure. And you put those two things together, those two ideas, those unconditional love is supposed to address those, and I would like to ask you how would unconditional love Deal with your continued malfeasance, your continued sin. How would it deal with God's character of holiness and justice and righteousness? You eat from that fruit, the day you eat, you will surely die. And yet we don't die. We sin, we eat the fruit every day, we don't die. And we don't think about it. The condition that God has set, nor His character. How are you going to put them together? I think the way we put it together is this. Listen carefully, I want to finish. With plentiful redemption. I didn't know this, folks, until I started looking at this more deeply. I knew what redemption meant, but I didn't know what plentiful meant. So I had to look it up. I had to actually go and look at the Hebrew word and pretend that I could understand it. And... Um, Get into the dictionaries and all that. Plentiful. What does plentiful mean? It means an order of magnitude. It's like saying redemption to the tenth power. You with me? You know what that is, right? Redemption to the tenth power. It's got lots of zeros. In fact, it's got more zeros than you can count. It's not just adding something to you. It's not just adding God's love to you or adding His peace to you. Plentiful means it is infinite. 
It is a multiplication. It's an order of magnitude. Well, I need to finish. Listen, what does plentiful mean? It means that it's inexhaustible. God's holiness is inexhaustible. Our sins are inexhaustible. So what does He do in order to redeem? He gives something that is equal to and equivalent. In fact, if you look in the dictionaries and the lexicons of these languages, Hebrew and Greek and all these, it's an equivalency. My son for you. My love, my chesed for your sins. My faithfulness for your unfaithfulness. That's what redemption is. That's what plentiful redemption is. So redemption would be a one-to-one exchange. Jesus exchanged for Chuck. Or Jesus exchanged for Chuck and Dawson and Marcos and the rest of you. But that's not what the word plentiful means. It means that it's not one-to-one. There's no equivalency. You see, one has so much worth that it's sufficient for how much? How much? The whole world. For God loved the world this way He gave not an equivalent, an equivalent with an order of magnitude. John Owen said in his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, that one drop of Jesus' blood is sufficient to forgive every sin in the souls of the entire world and a thousand worlds besides. One drop. But as Tim Keller famously said, Jesus did not tithe on His blood. He gave it all. 100%. The order of magnitude And all He asks, folks, is that we would trust Him. Will you do it? Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, thanks uh, for this kindness that You've shown us. It's beyond anything we could imagine. And we're making a journey. It's hard. Suffering is at every door, it seems. Fear and doubt plague us. Our sins weigh us down into the depths. We don't know if there's, if there's any way we'll get to the surface before we drown. But you have provided plentiful redemption in your Son. And as we come to your table, Father, we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.